can find me online on Twitter at TurnerESQ. I'm a contributor with The Athletic and Sounder at Heart, and you can find my writings on SoccerESQ.com. The coronavirus continues to be the talk around the world, with countries essentially shutting down as they attempt to weather the storm. It's no different here in the United States, where it appears the wave has yet to crest, and the federal government has recommended that public gatherings be limited to a handful of people, while local governments in multiple states have essentially shut down bars, restaurants, gyms, and other social gathering places. This has obviously affected sports in the United States, as every league, both professional and amateur, has suspended operations for the next 30 days, and based on the CDC guidelines recommending no large public gatherings for eight weeks, it could be June before things start to return to normal, if we're lucky. To talk about how this is affecting soccer in the United States, I called up Jeff Ruder of The Athletic, who recently published a piece on how MLS, NWSL, and USL are dealing with the crisis, in particular the USL, who, like other second division leagues around the world, work on thin margins. We discuss how they're dealing with the crisis and what they'll do when they return to the field. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, joining me now from The Athletic, Jeff Reuter, one of my uh, colleagues at The Athletic, a former beat writer for Minnesota, still covers them, is still based out of there, but is more covering regional stuff as well as MLS, uh, NWSL, and USL, and we've had some news on that front, and maybe we'll have some news here shortly. Uh, Jeff, uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's uh, let's kind of dig into it. Um, although before that, I want to just kind of get a bit of background on you. You were obviously covering uh, Minnesota United as a dedicated writer, and then you joined the Athletic. Uh, so, kind of what what are you doing right now for the Athletic, uh, covering uh, covering soccer? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's both it's both a relief and it feels kind of frivolous to be talking about soccer in a time like this. So sure. um, it, it, it is good to actually be back on a show like this. You know, obviously guest appearances are kind of uh, at an all time low right now, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, no, overall, I mean, I, so I, I was covering Minnesota United since 2015 um, and continued doing pretty regular work through the 2018 season with the athletic. And then when I joined in a staff capacity early in 2019, um, that workload has changed a bit. I, I consider myself now a, a national writer um, covering Major League Soccer and the USL predominantly. Um, one of the few writers, if, the, if not the only salaried writer who's covering the USL at this stage. And, and then also the NWSL where I can. The hard part, obviously, Minnesota does not have an NWSL team, but they also don't have any sort of USL teams. So, uh, I mean, but that's just covering soccer in the United States, right? It's never going to be about just covering your backyard if you're going to try to branch out like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, in general, for, for those not familiar, it's a fair amount of reporting, uh, some columns, some analysis, long-form stuff. Um, I mean, Look, it's the athletics. Pretty much, <laughs> sometimes yeah. it'll be a deep dive into the um, into the hot dog vendor uh, of the 2013 MLS Cup. Sometimes it'll be you know something else. So uh, a whole a whole potpourri of things and a whole wide range of topics and an even wider range of topics now. Certainly that we are in uh, suspension of play for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and uh, that's an excellent segue into uh, what I wanted to have you on for today. Uh, you wrote a, a story, uh, what Monday or maybe Sunday. Uh, regarding a call that was to take place, I think it was Monday morning, uh, yeah. between NWSL, USL, and MLS, basically a uh, meeting of the minds to kind of see how each each league is going to handle what is happening, obviously, with the coronavirus and the suspension of the leagues, all leagues, as everyone knows, there is no soccer or sports going on at this point. 
we're obviously going to focus on the soccer. Uh, and each league has uh, suspended soccer for about 30 days with the NWSL kind of in a different position because their league hasn't started yet. I'm actually hopeful to get Meg Linehan, um, our other athletic colleague, on here uh, on the show in a couple of days to talk about the NWSL side of things. So uh, let's dig in a little bit about uh, first your story, and then we'll kind of dig in specifically um, into some of the elements uh, it contained therein. But just reporting on what happened on uh, Monday with all of the leagues uh, kind of getting together to discuss what's going on. Yeah, so – it's it's kind of a continuation of some reporting we've been doing a fair amount of at the athletic, which is the the ongoing process of reacting to COVID nineteen to coronavirus to the CDC and Department of Homeland Security guidelines and figuring out how not just professional sports but specifically Major League Soccer, the United Soccer League, and the, the National Women's Soccer League will all uh, follow suit essentially. So what went on yesterday in the afternoon? was a conference call with key members from the leagues themselves and as far as I know every club if not the vast majority of clubs uh, to discuss what the game plan was essentially were they going to follow CDC customs when is it safe to return to training uh, in group settings instead of individual trainings when is it safe to have employees return to working from the office I, I think that the vast majority again of these headquarters will be working from home uh, and working remote for, again, the foreseeable future, probably at least a week or two uh, at this stage. Um, and, then, and then, I mean, moving forward, a lot of it was speculative using MLS just as the, the, the biggest league in the United States and Canada as the, the kind of example of how could you go about rescheduling to save some sort of visage of a 2020 season instead of ultimately just having to scrap it and having a dead year. So um, that was the extent of the piece on Monday. There's more reporting that will be coming, I'm sure, over the coming weeks. Uh, there just isn't a lot else to report on <laughs> at this point in the world of soccer. Yeah, I mean, it's all about scheduling and training and when they're going to return and the impact of what's going to happen with the delay. Will they be back at all? Um, obviously, at this point, we're not expecting the season to be canceled. It is way too early to even make, uh, you know, to even speculate about that. What's more uh, interesting from our perspective, I think, is the timing of their return because we're assuming they're going to return. Um, and so I'm curious, what, uh, what did you hear or what have you been hearing just generally about when we could see a return for the USL specifically? This obviously is going to impact all of the leagues because um, I think both of us have had, you know, some discussions which indicate that, all the leagues are likely to abide by the CDC guidelines, which means that no soccer will be played for at least eight weeks. And right. that's assuming that there's not going to be a preseason, uh, second preseason, quote unquote. So uh, just generally, what, what are your thoughts on uh, where we kind of sit as far as a return um, based on what you're hearing and just kind of read, reading the tea leaves? I think the safest assessment that I could give is that the initial 30-day suggestion was grossly insufficient. <laughs> and I, I think that it wasn't, it wasn't malpractice. It wasn't any sort of poor planning or poor oversight or whatever. I mean, there's been commenters on The Athletic, on Twitter, whatever, who are saying, you know, people aren't taking this seriously enough. How can you say 30 days is enough? How can you say eight weeks is enough? We're not saying that. I don't think that anyone, any of these leagues, any of the reporters covering them are suggesting that it will be business as usual in mid-May. I think that that seems a little bit rose-tinted at this stage when you consider the outbreak. A lot of states 
are Minnesota included as of yesterday are really cracking down on large gatherings. I mean, yesterday, of course, uh, the White House said that uh, any gathering of 10 people or more should be avoided at all costs if you can. Um, but of course, it's, it's enforcing that. It's whether or not people will actually do that. And I think that when you look at the realm of soccer, that includes training. And yesterday, Monday, uh, March 16th, there were USL teams still in training. It's less than half of the league. And again, there's, there's 47 teams in the USL this year, if you include League One, the third division. There are 47 teams, less than half of them were training. It, it's realistically probably about a dozen tops. But for those teams, I mean, I, I was getting texts from the teams that were, again, rightfully following suggestions from the CDC, who were taking this seriously, who were saying, look, there's no reason for us to train. We're not going to play a game for two months anyway, probably. Yeah. So at, at bare minimum. And so there's a lot of discontent towards the teams who are posting clips of themselves in training on Twitter. Uh, partly, I mean, coaches, I'm sure, are looking at it and saying things like competitive disadvantage, which is just whatever. That's just the competitive I'm not sure that's much of anything. <laughs> but that's, again, that's not much of anything. Exactly. You could take three weeks off at this point and, and you still have six weeks to tune up for your next game, probably. Um, but no, it is much more about the safety the well-being of not just the players, not just the staff, but their families and the people they come into contact with at this point. Look, this is unprecedented. This isn't H1N1. This isn't swine flu. This isn't bird flu. This isn't Ebola. The uh, the fatality rate of people with COVID-19 is far higher than those were. So I, I think that teams are realizing, yes, we do need to take this more seriously. Yes, we need to take these actions. We do need to follow what the government is suggesting. But there is always that reluctance to follow that initially and be that trendsetter. And if you're looking across the board, Major League Soccer did not take the action to suspend for 30 days until after the NBA had, NHL had, Major League Baseball had. And then from there, the NWSL and the USL have been following suit off of Major League Soccer's lead throughout this entire thing. I think that the NWSL actually did announce the, the training moratorium for this current week before MLS, but those were decided concurrently. So soccer is following what the other leagues are doing to a degree, there's more financially at risk for soccer teams than these other leagues, given the TV deals for each of the three leagues that we're discussing today. Uh, and I, I think that's understandable. As for a timetable for return, um, if you want to go ahead and open up your calendar phone as you're, or your calendar app on your phone as you're listening to this, and if you want to scroll, let's say, for about five seconds and then put your finger on a random week of your calendar, that's as good a guess as any right <laughs> Yeah because we really have no idea how this is going to spread. I would be shocked if we are seeing a ball kicked in competitive game before June 1st at this stage. That's kind of the, the, uh, the date I've kind of pegged because again, assuming that all the leagues follow the CDC guidelines and we start that from March 15th, just to have a middle of the month type of date. That means May 15th before the, uh, the guidelines are lifted, I suppose, for lack of a better word. And from that point, you've got to have a, a couple of weeks likely of, of training, maybe get in a scrimmage uh, or a friendly game or two, and then you're ready to go. That said, I would expect that they're going to ramp up very quickly because uh, one of the things we're also going to talk about here as well is the scheduling going forward when they come back. So, you know, they're not going to have the opportunity to kind of leisurely get back into things. Uh, (laughs) You're going to see probably two weeks and then boom, we're off. Um, And so let's actually talk about um, 
kind of what they're talking about as far as uh, extending the season uh, and some of the options there. You wrote a little bit about that in the athletic piece uh, as far as MLS and USL. We're, we're, we're getting some breaking news uh, today in that the uh, Euros have been postponed. Uh, I assume that Copa America is going to be postponed if it, it hasn't been already. Yep. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure I saw that it had. So that does clear up a little bit of the uh, of the summer calendar. True. So there is, there are additional dates by which they could get in games. The other thing that you wrote about is the uh, U.S. Open Cup. Um, mm-hmm. And you also wrote that USL had essentially informed the U.S. Soccer Federation that they weren't uh, likely to participate in it. Um, I've had some conversations on my own, but I want to get kind of your thoughts on uh, where that is. Uh, obviously, no decisions have been made. Uh, U.S. Soccer hasn't announced that this, the tournament's been canceled or postponed or there's been some alterations. But uh, I wanted to chat a little bit about how the uh, U.S. Open Cup could impact things as far as the scheduling is concerned, especially if it's, uh, it's altered in some way. Right, and, and I don't think that you'll see – any iteration of the U.S. Open Cup without some severe alterations if the tournament happens at all in 2020. Uh, The USL was pretty determined and unanimous in their motion to request to not be part of the tournament this year. The idea being that there are over 700 games that the league needs to reschedule, or not reschedule, but 700 total games that they're looking at at this point for the entire season. And there's a large number of those that are going to need to be rescheduled. I think USL teams, if my math was right, need to reschedule anywhere from 8 to 11 games. And that is, again, if play is able to resume in mid-May. Obviously, there will be more than that. We're probably looking at about 15 games that there'll be, each team will need to reschedule. With that in mind, the U.S. Open Cup just wasn't going to be a priority for them. That's a tournament that's always thrived when the non-MLS competitors are taking it seriously, are able to pull off upsets and are able to make cup runs and have that kind of feel-good Cinderella story. The hard part is, without the USL, you're looking at 39 of the 100 entrants in this year's U.S. Open Cup. If you're including League One and you're eliminating the ineligible MLS 2 teams, all of the affiliates in both leagues. So you're looking at a 61-team tournament which has an enormous gap between major league soccer and amateur teams. And I just don't think that you're able to run that tournament uh, with any sort of, I, I don't know. Credibility. Mm-hmm. Credibility, right. Like it's, just, it's not the U.S. Open Cup at that point because it's the first division and the fourth division. And I, I would be very surprised if the tournament was going to say, okay, we'll, we'll leave USL out of it. We're going to remake the bracket. They've already postponed the first three rounds of the tournament, which we're going to be, I believe, next week. Uh, this time next week, so like the 23rd, 24th, or 24th, 25th of March, and then the second week of April and the fourth week of April, all of those have been postponed. So that, I'm sure, is the Federation trying to bide some time, one, to get over the Carlos Cordero shakeup, two, to get USL back on board by saying, look, things are progressing uh, health-wise in a beneficial way. The pandemic is starting to die down. We flattened the curve. Uh, all of these things, we will be able to reschedule around you. Please let us run this tournament. I don't think that'll happen. I would be very surprised if there's a U.S. Open Cup in 2020. And frankly, that's a shame just from the sporting side, but it makes complete sense from a logistical side on these leagues uh, and their rescheduling efforts. Yeah, and, and from what I've uh, heard in, in my discussions is that uh, USL essentially is, uh, they're prioritizing the rescheduling of games ahead of the U.S. Open Cup. 
uh, whether that means, you know, going down the line, they extend their season, which is something we'll talk about generally, um, or they cut some games. They want to get as many of their league games in as possible because that is where they generate their gate revenue. Uh, you know, to the extent they have a TV deal, uh, that's obviously important as well, but you got uh, gate revenue, concessions, parking, et cetera. Right. And so it's just, you know, I I think their their point is absolutely legitimate in that they need you know <laughs> that's where their bread is buttered and so that's where they need to need to focus and without that uh, without the thirty nine uh, thirty plus teams that are in the tournament um, I'm not sure that and I'm not sure that U S soccer is inclined to run a tournament with only MLS and uh, amateur slash uh, PDL slash semi pro teams. Um, and that's to say nothing of the fact that it's questionable whether MLS will want to participate because they're certainly going to prioritize, uh, you know, their their league schedule ahead of the U.S. Open Cup, too. So it's it's an unfortunate situation. But, uh, you know, just generally, uh, do you think there's any impact on the Open Cup itself if it's canceled or is it just, you know, it's a situation just so uh, unique that, everyone will essentially chalk it up to, well, you know, we had to do what we had to do and we'll, and we'll just have to come back next year. I'm guessing that would be the most likely scenario. I mean, look, this is a tournament that played through uh, two world wars and Spanish flu. Like, like there's just, there's no real history to base off of in terms of trying to figure out what's going to happen with this tournament. There have been longstanding discussions for probably the last five years of how you improve and revitalize the U S open cup last year on paper made some serious strides. Yep. Move to have every game on ESPN plus certainly helped. The other thing though, two of the quarter finalists were USL teams. So again, you're getting back to the fact that people, the, the greater American soccer public loves Cinderella. They don't want to watch MLS teams putting their B team out against another MLS team, putting their B team out. So they're going to get a little more attached to the USL the league one, the NPSL and all of the other amateur teams. So there's, you know, Nisa I'm sure won't be upset or won't be happy about the fact that they won't be able to make their debut in the tournament either. Uh, so they will be pushing for uh, a restart in 2021. There's going to be some serious questions about qualification. You know, all of these teams that did qualify and were actually able to make it out of the first three kind of preliminary rounds. And we're going to be competing next week. Think teams like Minneapolis city, Chicago FC United, I mean, Christos, if you look back to a few years ago, those teams now are going to have some serious questions about, okay, so then were we just burnt? Is the Federation going to give us a little bit of, you know, kind of prize money to at least make the qualification process worth our while? Or were we just screwed by a tough situation? Uh, I don't know what the real answer is for that one, but obviously that's why I'm a writer and not the president of U.S. Soccer. Uh, well, there there is the opportunity to run if you're looking there for the uh, you might have yeah. some letters of nomination, but uh, we'll have that's a that's a discussion for another uh, another point. So, tell you um, what, if I decide to run for U.S. Soccer President, I will come back on the podcast and announce it on your show. Oh, I, excellent! I, lo- I love an exclusive, uh, as any good uh, reporter or, or journalist knows. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about the U.S. Uh, USL and you know, kind of where they're where they're headed with all of this. Uh, we talked about them. Uh, you know, prior to prioritizing the season over, uh, over us open cup. So, uh, what have you been hearing about how they're dealing generally with the, uh, with the coronavirus? uh, the owners, I think at this point, it's fair to say they're, they're united in trying to get through this, but at some point, obviously the bottom line starts to, to creep in the back of their minds and, you know, financials, uh, you know, come into play. So uh, what are you hearing about just how they're handling it generally and, and what they're looking to do, uh, you know, going forward to mitigate some of these issues? 
the bottom line's already crept into the back of their heads. You know, I, I don't think that there's any way that you can look at this discussion about how they're handling it, about their tardiness and some of their timelines and not say that the owners are really hesitant because of just how massive game by game revenue is. Every, almost every club in lower division soccer in the United States and across the world is going to operate in the red. I think that's a pretty well-known given, uh, save for maybe a few of the owners who bought into the NASL. But uh, I, I think that overall, they understand that health comes first, that they're going to have some serious backlash if they aren't taking this seriously, if they aren't doing what the government suggests they do, what other sports leagues, not just soccer leagues, but sports leagues across the world are doing. But uh, again, I mean, you're looking at teams that are training in the middle of a quarantine demand and they're holding 25, 30 team or player training with staff at a facility, handshakes, full body contact in plays, uh, full physicality. That is crazy. It's not even just crazy. It's actually reckless. That is genuinely putting lives at risk. And this is in a region of the country that has, uh, regions, I should say, of the country that have very serious uh, outbreaks and reported cases and, and tests that have been done. These are in the Southwest. These are in the Northwest. This is in, uh, you, you can't possibly say that you have the best interest of your players, your fans, your staff, if you're going to be holding training during a pandemic. So, so I think that there's a part of this too, where they're looking and they're saying competitive advantage. They're saying, oh, we're looking at the, the bottom line. We're looking at making sure that we get what we can out of paying for these players. This is not the time for that. This is not a time to be trying to put soccer above public health. So I think that there's a lot of reluctance more than you will see in other leagues. There isn't revenue sharing. I get it. There isn't a lot, if any, uh, significant league wide sponsorship deals that pay out the, the teams individually. I totally get that. But again, this is not the time to be trying to like, you know, really push the envelope as far as those things go. So I I think that you're seeing owners again, who are for the most part, completely on board, who unanimously voted to put the 30, the initial 30 day um, into effect who uh, have agreed in principle, I'm sure it'll be announced by the time this podcast is released uh, to follow the eight week CDC guideline and to, essentially, I mean, just kind of backdate a little bit. So it will be on the exact same sort of timeline as Major League Soccer and the NWL, which would put you into, I think it's like May 13th, uh, if I recall from when that was actually initiated. Um, I think that there is still uh, going to be a severe push. Again, the U.S. Open Cup is pretty much out of the question, but to actually reschedule these midweek games, I think that they're going to be open to the idea of, and we'll get into scheduling more, I'm sure, as this goes on, once I get off my soapbox here, sorry. And we, uh, um, yeah. And when they ultimately decide that it's time to get back into action, I think that they're going to extend their season a little bit. You're looking at a postseason that's going to end a little bit later, most likely. Um, but that's just the reality of this. If you're going to try to make up as many of the 34 game slate as possible. Uh, and I guess related to that, uh, assuming this announcement comes and we fully expect it to, uh, does that put the moratorium then? Do you think USL at that point says nobody's training um, at this point until, say, a week before the May 13th date? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, MLS has, you know, they've incrementally put uh, moratoriums on training, but assuming that they go with the eight weeks, you would expect that they're going to say, all right, no one's training, everyone's self-quarantine, self-isolation. 
um, right. social distancing for the, say the next six weeks. Uh, have you heard anything about how they, how they would handle uh, training? I assume again, that they would likely put in some type of edict to cover all the teams. So we don't get into problems like you, uh, you've noted where you've got some teams training and some teams not. Noted is the nicest way you can put my last yeah. answer. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sorry about that one, actually. Uh, but I think that you're going to be seeing a lot of this week by week. There is a scheduled call again on Monday that will have, again, MLS, USL, and WSL participants to discuss updates on the, the spread of the disease, of the pandemic itself, of best practice, I don't know if there's going to necessarily be that blanket eight weeks. I, I think that there are going to be some teams that are going to try to find creative ways to get around that. Again, like less than 10 players per group. And so then you're bringing in maybe just your center backs for a session and then your central midfielders and then your wingers and then your strikers and whatever. And you're finding goalkeepers, you're finding a way to get around it. So you have some coaches some trainers, whatever, and you're under 10. I think that you're going to see a lot of teams that are looking for ways to do that individual training. I know there are teams that are already looking to really kind of push the envelope with that um, and find ways to do that in genuinely what I believe is a responsible way to do that. If you have to, Um, I think that you would see some teams who are asking for, so, so this is the part where everything I set up before that is pretty concrete, everything before that. But now we're getting back into the land of speculation. Yeah. Are you saying, okay, are they going to be looking for waivers? Are they going to be looking for, okay, we've already acknowledged that the eight weeks is running low. Are we able to return to training an extra week or two sooner? That is purely speculative. Are we going to be able to find a way where we're able to get groups of 15 so that we can do our whole defense or our whole attack half, half by half? I don't know that. That is completely speculative, and it really does depend on how this pandemic breaks. But I do think that there is going to be a push for something of a secondary preseason across uh, all of the leagues, something or an extended preseason, I guess, for the MWSL because they haven't kicked off the regular season yet. Uh, You will be looking at something of a just regionally-based scrimmages, probably closed-door again because there's nothing American soccer loves more than a closed-door scrimmage. And you're going to be looking at trying to get back into action as soon as possible when putting on a product on the field that is going to be uh, as – as close to the expected level as possible given the long layoff and the circumstances because the last thing that you want to do is come back and the game is unwatchable because as ever there's a tv deal on the top of everyone's minds in major league soccer that they want to make sure is as lucrative as possible yeah so let's talk a little bit about some of the other off the field stuff uh you know usl obviously you've talked about you know the margins that the teams are operating at uh, and so there's not a lot of money out there, especially with them not being um, in season at the moment. Um, have you heard anything about how they're handling, uh, you know, the people that have been affected by this, uh, you know, as far as part-time workers? We've heard about some teams in, you know, in MLS uh, who are, you know, stepping up to cover the, uh, the part-time workers that, uh, who have uh, lost shifts because of this. Right. Um, so uh, as far as, say, the, the hourly worker in the concession stand, how are they handling that? And have you heard anything about how the players are affected because the contracts are obviously quite different um, in USL than they are in MLS, and there's no CBA in place with USL? Uh, and the USL Players Association, They're, they've been working on that, but right. that's certainly not going to be in place uh, before this uh, before this is over. Um, you know, to not. say nothing of the summer, right? Right. I think that there. So there was an open letter 
or a memo that was co-signed by the USLPA and USL president Jake Edwards that was sent to every owner saying that the expectation was that players would be paid in full as if there was training going on. Um, Something that the USL will be especially hurt by is the meals provided on training days because usually teams will have a breakfast and a lunch for any player who comes in for training. That's just pretty, pretty standard practice across sports when you have a morning training. Um, sorry for slack. So we, it's one thing for major league soccer players who have a certain minimum floor of their salary will then be able to, you know, still afford breakfast and lunch every single day. But for players who are making 1500 a month, for players who are making even maybe less than that, who are very reliant on maybe getting 30% of their income in the form of bonuses, performances, starts, goals, clean sheets, those players are going to be feeling the pinch a lot more when suddenly they have to put an extra two meals on the table every single day for themselves. Uh, you're probably going to see more players get back into that ride-sharing app driving um, hemisphere. Uh, you're probably going to see some players looking for part-time work. You're probably going to see a lot of players uh, who are trying to find unfortunate creative ways to make ends meet in this circumstance. Um, Unfortunately, as far as stadium workers go, it really is going to be case by case. You are seeing some owners who are really stepping up. Uh, You're seeing clubs like the Portland Timbers, Colorado Rapids, uh, Atlanta United, um, who are going to do what they can to help the stadium workers, certainly in these times, uh, who are losing hourly work. But the reality of it, it, it's a little bit of a different comparison when you're looking at the soccer leagues than when you're looking at Major League Baseball, the NBA, or the NHL, because you're probably looking at, from that first 30 days, you were looking at maybe two games for these teams. So usually these aren't employees who are directly contracted, uh, non-compete, whatever, with these venues. They're hourly workers who probably work also, in the case of Minnesota, which is where I'm based out of, which is probably obvious on some of the words I've said uh, throughout this interview. Um, you were seeing, you know, they might work for the at target field for the twins for, you know, four games a week. And then they go over to Allianz field to work one for the loons. And then the loons are gone for two weeks. And so then they're working at the target center for the wolves or you're working at the XL energy center for the wild. Uh, You know, I I think major league soccer has a little bit of a different set of calculus around this, just given how many fewer games the league has at home than any of the other leagues that are currently in season. Obviously the NFL would be different, but they're in their off season right now. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a tough situation. Uh, you know, and again, with the margins that the those USL teams are working at, and even MLS for that matter, uh, it it makes it difficult. Uh, but there are some teams stepping up to to assist uh, to assist their players. Uh, a couple more things. Um, you know, uh, when they come back, if they come back, you know, we we, uh, we reference this a little bit as, as far as the schedule. What do you see as the most likely scenario for uh usl specifically to come back because they have uh well i guess it, you know the, they have a 34 game schedule right right yeah so it's the same as mls uh they've played a similar amount of games as mls uh with the us open cup out of the way that does provide some scheduling relief potentially especially with the international competition con not that that affects usl as much as it does mls True. um but i i suppose this is somewhat dependent obviously on when the CDC guidelines are lifted, assuming that it doesn't extend past the eight weeks, assuming that the leagues follow that. Um, so assuming we get back at June 1st, uh, what do you see as the most likely scenario for them to try to get as many games in as possible? And, you know, I guess, you know, on the speculation front, where, what's the point where the season becomes in jeopardy, do you think, as far as them not being able to get a sufficient amount of games in to have what 
could be called a credible um, season and outcome. Sure. And I think that's, that's where you're going to get into some very interesting discussions about what makes a credible season. And you're looking at that right now in the European leagues who are trying to decide, do we crown champions? Do we, how do we work with the, the European places for the champions league and the Europa league? How are we looking at relegation promotion, all of that stuff? Uh, I think for the USL, what makes a lot of sense to me is if you extend the regular season maybe into the first week of November. Right now it would end on October 17th, I believe is the exact date, uh, where the entire league plays on a Saturday. Uh, sprawled out, it's not unit or like the same time kickoff like it is in Major League Soccer. But I, I think that if you were to use an extra two weeks, maybe even three weeks, then you're looking at a lot of Wednesdays that you're trying to reschedule from June 1st through October uh, or November in this case. But I think that that would be the most likely way that you're actually able to play. What, what's unique about the USL compared to Major League Soccer? With Major League Soccer, one of the things I suggested in The Athletic, and again, these are suggestions. I'm not going to say that any of the schedule pro- proposals that I put through uh, in that article yesterday were, I mean, ironclad going to be happening in talks in the boardroom, whatever. But these are things that make a lot of sense. What makes sense for Major League Soccer is maybe to get rid of cross-conference play for the season. And so you're only playing 24 more games, Western Conference teams against the West, Eastern Conference teams against the East. You keep the two results from the beginning of the season. So yes, some teams will play each other three times. Some teams will have a random game across the conferences, but that's an easy way to make it something of a legitimate season. And there's still some sort of competitive balance considering, again, you played every team in your conference twice. The USL already plays every team in its conference twice. And they don't have any sort of interleague play where they're playing against the other conference. So you're getting into a really... Uh, really difficult uh, scheduling conflict here where there will be a lot of teams where if you have to cut games, which matchups? Because the team that doesn't have to play Phoenix Rising, the team that doesn't have to play El Paso with Locomotive, Tampa Bay Rowdies, those teams are going to have something of an advantage compared to the ones who maybe uh, miss Colorado Springs, Tacoma Defiance, who maybe miss uh, any of the MLS2 teams for that matter, for the most part, except for maybe Real Monarchs or Red Bulls too. So I think that there's going to be some interesting discussions about how you do that with any sort of balance. But I think that as you're looking at mid-May, June 1st, you have to concede that there's no way your schedule is going to be as balanced as it would have been with a full season. I think that you just have to say this was an anomaly. We'll get back to business as usual in 2021. When do you start worrying about whether or not there will be a season at all? I think if this kicks into July, if it kicks into mid, if, if, this, if the guidelines for mass gatherings were to extend themselves into mid-June, and like we've said, you would need some sort of preseason. You need some sort of tune-up period instead of just saying, okay, we've been off for 12 weeks. Now let's Yeah, especially right. at that point, if you're now off for uh, three months instead of uh, two and a half or a month and a half. Yeah, that's huge. That's massive. And I think at that point, you're really looking at how are you going to do that? Is there not going to be a postseason this year? But then how do you get through the season without MLS Cup? Are you just going to do the regular season champions in each country or in each conference? Because there's a couple of things that you need to keep in mind. There are certain games you need to have. You need to have two El Traficos. For your ratings, for your sponsors, for viewership, you need to have two of those. You need to have Portland-Seattle play twice. You need to have New York-New York play twice. There are some of these games where you just have to concede these have to happen twice. MLS Cup, whether you like the playoff system or not, needs to happen because that is one of the biggest viewership uh, days on the MLS and the domestic soccer calendar. So 
trying to find a way to keep that all intact is going to be a massive headache for a lot of people. Uh, luckily, it's not my headache. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right. Uh, before we answer a question or two, uh, just how are uh, you talked about how the uh, respective leagues are meeting? Uh, they met on Monday and they're going to meet next Monday. And I'm sure they've met well um, many times in between that. Uh, you know, I don't expect there's going to be any formal partnership uh, on this, but they will, you know, essentially keep each other uh, updated on, 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 on their, on their practices. Uh, do you expect that's about what we'll see from uh, each of the respective leagues, but not anything in the way of joint statements uh, and things like that? Yeah. I, I think that it's going to continue to be pretty standard to have this weird, MLS announces first what what it's been uh, again with the one exception of Sunday. Um, so far, what the what these announcements have looked like is MLS announced very soon after the NWSL announces, and then sometime later when all of the owners are looped in on the USL side, the USL makes an announcement as well. Um, so, I mean, follow your friends at the Athletic because <laughs> a lot of the times we're actually able to put this out uh, before the leagues actually announce it for whatever reason that's been the case, that has so far been the case. I don't expect there to be a ton of I mean, unified statements. It might make a lot more sense, but the reality is the USL's framework not being a single entity league means that it's a little bit trickier to make sure that these decisions will not upset the ownership, even if they're obvious decisions. So they do have to go through a little bit more of an extended process, which again is why the USL has always been third when they're announcing these sorts of updates. Yeah, which makes me wonder when MLS is going to come out with whatever they're going to do on the uh, on the CDC guidelines, uh, because uh, if that's the case, you think that they're going to come up with something here pretty soon as well. All right, so let's answer a, a couple of questions before we uh, sign off and get back to uh, digging around. Uh, and thanks for a couple of questions on uh, Twitter. Uh, Steve Lindley, St. Lindley on Twitter asks, uh, "What is the best Blizzard option at Dairy Queen? Is nerds <laughs> the worst?" <laughs> uh, Steve doesn't know this. Steve, I, I, I'm guessing a, a fair amount of these are going to be Minnesota United fans that I do recognize uh, the names of. Uh, Steve doesn't know this, but Dairy Queen was actually my first job when I was in high school at age ah. 16. Uh, so I am I am intimately familiar with the at least older Blizzard offerings at Dairy Queen. Uh, I, I don't think that you can ever go wrong with a standard Reese's peanut butter cup. Um, Oreo is always good. If I'm going to go with my favorite, it used to be brownie batter until I saw what the brownie batter looks like in it, inside <laughs> of the Dairy Queen. And now I just can't touch it. Uh, it's just a vat of tar that's delivered to all these locations. Um, you weren't expecting a very thought out answer on this one, were you? Um, I think my favorite was one that I came up with, which is the, the, the bastardized Twix blizzard, which I would make on my break, uh, which is hot caramel, uh, pie crust pieces, and a little bit of a, the chocolate shell that you dip cones in and you put oh, all wow. that together. And that was fantastic, but that is off menu. Um, nerds. I loved when I was five years old and I couldn't touch it now. It just makes zero sense as far as the flavor profile. Yeah. That's yeah. The nerds. That's ridiculous. I, I'm an Oreo cookie, uh, Yep. And that's been my uh, go-to for forever. All right, let's get one more in there. Uh, what port do you recommend? And this is from uh, Colin Berg. <laughs> what port do you recommend that's under $40 a bottle, that, but still carries a nice balance of dark stone flavors and caramel overtones? Uh, do you want to kick us off on that one? Do you have any port recommendations? I'm not a huge oh. port guy. I got one for our wedding, uh, which was quite nice. We enjoyed it, but I think it was 
above that price point. Do you have any? Oh, I have absolutely none. Uh, my my drinking is is limited to seltzers these days. Uh, hence, yes. uh, as part of the uh, keto diet, so I can I can uh, get you on the White Claw or Truly uh, train. Well, but aside from that, first off, White Claw or Truly? Uh, White Claw, actually. I'm 100%. I'm a fan. Hundred percent agree. Second, what is your favorite flavor? I'm uh, bring- oh, lime is one hundred percent my favorite flavor. Lime is interesting. Yeah. Okay, keeping OG there. I respect that. Uh, I'm I'm team mango on this. Oh but, yeah, yeah. That's gonna get you in trouble with a couple of my friends. They think mango is absolute trash. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Honestly, there aren't many flavors that I will turn down if I'm offered them. I love a white claw. Um, I think if you've tried their new variety pack, the watermelon is borderline undrinkable. Um, but other than that, love them all. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, they're, they're solid. They're solid. And, you know, they've gotten, they got kind of a, a bad rap initially, but now that, you know, everyone is, everyone and their uh, sister and uh, sorority, sorority yeah. friends are, are, are on and the White Claw put, or hard, put, hard seltzer train. So, so uh, Colin, to questions. answer your question, uh, what? what we'll say is the best $40 port you can buy is like three cases of White Claw. No, <laughs> that's perfect. That's a perfect place. And there's a couple of more questions, uh, especially one on the NWSL, but I think I'm going to say that for Meg, uh, assuming I can get her on. So I want to thank Jeff for joining me. And this was a fantastic conversation. Uh, before we sign off, uh, Jeff, where can fi- people find your work uh, aside from the athletic, although that's uh, you can, 90% you can of it. Find me, yeah. You can find me tweeting my work from the athletic at Jeff Ruder, R U E T E R. Um, Otherwise, yeah, I mean, just be safe, practice social distancing, take care of each other, and just be kind. Uh, support local businesses that are going through a hell of a time right now, especially food services, uh, breweries, and, and liquor uh, manufacturers. Um, it, certainly, it's going to be a very difficult time as bars are closed. So where you are able to, I know everyone's feeling the strain right now, but really uh, look after them now and certainly when they get back up and running. Uh, well said. I don't think I could say it any better. So, uh, Jeff, I want to thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast. This was great. And we'll be back, I'm sure, soon with uh, additional updates because uh, we're going to get a lot of news off the field, if not on. Absolutely.